Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the University of East Anglia, in collaboration with the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Coordinator at the Centre for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Eugenia Bogdanova-Kuma, lecturer in Japanese Arts, Cultures and Heritage at the Sainsbury Institute, who will be introducing to us calligraphy and the post-war avant-garde movement. We hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Good morning, Eugenia. Thank you for joining us uh, on the podcast. Thank you, Ollie. Good morning. So uh, I'd like to first ask you, what is your research field and how did you get into it? So um, it's hard for me to say what exactly is my research field because I kind of work across several ones. I probably feel closest to art history because that's my training and that's what my dissertation was like. So uh, that's basically the methodology that I'm using. But I had training in Japanese language and linguistics in uh, literature. Yeah, and general Japanese cultural studies. So... It's primarily um, primarily Japanese studies, more art historical, visual studies, definitely. Uh, yeah, and specifically in my field, basically my, what my research is about is about modern calligraphy history, which probably results from this, you know, interest in several fields, like especially cross section between language and visual arts. So that's where I feel calligraphy comes in. All right. Um, yeah. So quite a mix. Um, why did you choose calligraphy? Um, because, um, as I said, I'm interested in uh, the ways how language is visualized. So not only you know what we read, but also what we look at while we read. Um, and that's aspect that I feel deserves more attention generally, especially in East Asian cultures. And actually, when we look at the ways how calligraphy is being researched and um, situated generally within Chinese studies and Japanese studies, the difference is striking. Because in Chinese is such an established field in the Chinese art history and in, in Sinology altogether. And in Japanese it seems completely marginalized. Um, I was actually surprised when I started researching for my dissertation how little has been done on calligraphy history, in particular on modern calligraphy history in Japan. I just couldn't believe it. Um, there are rec- virtually maybe two, three article on papers in English written in that field and nothing else. That's it's really incredible. And so that's when I stopped doubting what should be my field. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's lots, lots of work to be done there. So why could you just briefly explain um, which countries calligraphy is a uh, dominant cultural aspect and perhaps why you think it's not so prominent in Japan, in academia at least? Uh, you mean why calligraphy is so prominent in other countries but not in Japan? Or well, generally, uh, just give us yeah. an idea of what regions you can find calligraphy as a prominent okay. cultural aspect. Uh, calligraphy, yes, as a cultural practice. Um, you know, basically every culture that has writing has some form of calligraphy because it's the question of how you define calligraphy, but in my understanding... Uh, you can look for several definitions, but this is, you know, artistic interpretation of writing culture, mm-hmm. very broadly speaking. And each culture that has writing 
has some people who work professionally with writing scripts um, and typography, prints, all this type of thing. So broadly speaking, um, of the prominent examples, famous examples, of course, we have the East Asian calligraphy. I wouldn't necessarily separate so uh, strictly between Chinese and Japanese, especially in the pre-modern period, and also Korean and all other spheres of the Sinospheres. Uh, because it was, you know, it was a joint cultural sphere and calligraphic models traveled from China to Japan and it was shared knowledge and shared visual culture. So that's, of course, a very prominent example. Another prominent example is Arabic calligraphy, of course. Very famous, um, very well known as well. There's some very interesting parallels between, um, you know, Sino-Japanese and Arabic calligraphy history and takes on that especially the, the role that it plays in culture, the relationship between religion and writing. That's actually very interesting. That's very fascinating. Also un, under-researched as pretty much many aspects of, of this field. But also, you know, in Europe, there were such strong calligraphic traditions as well, which are probably not so strong today, but uh, medieval Europe, when we think about it, there were examples here as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I see. And so what uh, do you think is so special about calligraphy? Because um, calligraphy and generally um, the visual culture of writing is something that we perceive subconsciously and which nevertheless carries a lot of information. So when you look at how something is written, Beyond the message that is being written, you also read information about the style of the script, be it handwritten or be it printed. Um, you can very often read time. When was it written? Um, you know, if it's if it's handwritten, it's even richer. So you can try to guess um, education level. You can try to guess the. Um, artistic direction of this of this artist of the of the writer, you can try. Sometimes you may be able to get the mood, especially if person is really frustrated or angry or has some type of crisis or is very ill. You are able to see it in, in writing, and it's actually fascinating because you have this evidence or you have this you know piece of paper in front of you and it immediately connects you to the personality of the person who wrote it there that could be centuries ago it's quite astonishing actually amazing and many many aspects of it are even more directly related to personality personal histories personal connections uh, than even in painting so in some ways it's like reading a diary almost Yes, and it's even reading uh, emotional diaries, not just, you know, what happened, but also how did person feel. And, uh, yeah, and also very often it's also how the person wanted to represent himself or herself, you know, by choosing specific style or by choosing specific ink or brush or something like that. There are messages that being conveyed, um, you know, through this as well, not just through what is written. And I think uh, when we pay more attention to this aspect, we learn so much more about Japanese culture altogether, not just art history or not just, you know, history of calligraphy, but really more generally about culture. And I think this should be 
much more prominent incorporated in the Japanese studies altogether. And not just Japanese studies, but into cultural studies. Yeah, definitely. It's obviously a globally relevant yeah. field, um, as you've stated. You mentioned education earlier, how you can tell the different education levels of people who have written calligraphy from how, mm -hmm. they, how they write. Um, and I was under the impression that calligraphy was for much of uh, at least East Asian history and elite cultural practice. Um, are you saying that uh, there was a time where it shifted away from elites? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, artistic calligraphy, calligraphy for as a form of visual expression is probably more indeed um, something for elites, even though it also very much depends on when do we look at, uh, what period of time we're looking at. Um, it's also same as with artistic lineages. Um, they're also calligraphic lineages, so there's like dynasties of calligraphers. And I don't know whether we can call them elites or not, because, you know, there are also professional people who work in calligraphy across generations. Um, and it's just what they do for life. So it's just a different type of people. But uh, in a sense... Also, common people in Japan also, when people write, uh, learn to write, it's very much uh, also about how you write, so like the aesthetics of it. And, you know, even today, as a foreigner, as myself as a foreigner, studying, you know, Japanese language, script, and um, it's actually quite easy to, it's actually extremely easy to distinguish the writing by a Japanese person and by a foreigner. It stands out immediately. So just very much about training and joint training. And it's also about how long, like how much time do you dedicate to practicing it? So I wouldn't necessarily call it elite practice. I think it was elite practice, like, you know, in the medieval times, maybe. But it also was like, like really a practical skill as well. But um, today, not necessarily. I think many, like, you know, calligraphy is part of school education. So... Everybody who studies at the Japanese school has introduction to calligraphy and actually has some training in, in calligraphy. Um, people who choose to do it more, not even professionally, but you know, more in a more dedicated way, um, really just nowadays just choose to do it. Maybe they have sometimes they have more special background or they're just more inclined to this, you know, more literary type of activities, but. I wouldn't necessarily make it such a elite practice today. I that's at least not how I perceive it. And when I talk to calligraphers, I, like contemporary calligraphers, many of them are school teachers, or they work in education, or they do well, quite usual jobs. This brings us on to your field of research. You're, you specialize in post-war avant-garde calligraphy. Can you, can you explain what precisely that is, first yeah. of all, and why you chose it. First, let me explain what that is. Um, so in the 1950s, actually starting from the end of the Second World War, there was a very strong movement in Japan to modernize um, and to innovate calligraphy. And there were several reasons for that. So one of them being that uh, during the very active um, democratization reforms by the Allied forces, calligraphy was really question like you know the, the status of calligraphy was questioned and it was eliminated from school education as basically not necessary by the occupation authorities 
And so calligraphers felt that their practice has been just threatened, so, and they felt like they need to change something about it. Um, and so what they started doing, they started actively trying to transform it and to bring it closer to the general public and to audiences, not only in Japan, but abroad, so that you know foreigners and global audiences would be able to understand what they're actually doing. And of course, since they're, you know, calligraphers are working with language, it's hard because you have to transcend this language somehow. You have to transcend the language uh, border. And so they started creating works that more and more echoed abstract painting. And visually, when you look at the post-war avant-garde calligraphy, it's sometimes very hard to tell the difference between abstract painting and abstract calligraphy and avant-garde calligraphy. So it's really very new and very unique and very innovative art form um, that really questions all the stereotypes, all conventions, not only of the Japanese calligraphy, but also generally of the Japanese visual practices and where's the difference between uh, what's been done in Japan and what's been done elsewhere in the world. Uh, yeah, they even experimented with abstraction for a short period of time. So there was like maybe four or five years when calligraphers, not all calligraphers, of course, but, you know, some of them actively worked with abstract images. So they did not use characters anymore, which is, you know, quite, quite interesting, but also poses all these difficult questions about what is calligraphy then if it's not using characters anymore. Um, you know, so what is it? Is it just art form that uses ink on paper, but they were also experimenting with oil on canvas, or with other media, with enamel, for example. So it's very complex art. Uh, it's a very complex part of calligraphy history, which for me is extremely interesting because it's visually very appealing. And it also has all these big questions about international exchange, visual exchange, artistic exchange, about Japanese identity, about tradition, about modernization, and about the possibilities of incorporating traditional art practice into contemporary art and making something that is Japanese and actually um, something that is not meant for people who don't read it, actually. How to make it such that it's understandable to somebody who doesn't read it. So. Um, and another reason for me to go into this field is that it's so under-researched. So somebody had to do it. <laughs> Just to build on that notion that you raised earlier about um, how once the post-war avant-garde calligraphy moved away from using characters, mm -hmm. uh, I guess calligraphy, uh, even before this stage, sort of occupies uh, a grey area between literature and painted art. Um, so in this way, how does it relate to these fields and other fields? I mean, this is um, in a way uh, how calligraphers, you know, argued about their experiments in, with abstraction because they don't, you know, calligraphy is not necessarily defined through words, you know, through words that are being represented. It's much more than that. It's very much about training. So it's about visual language altogether. It's about brush, a particular brush positions and brush movements and brush strokes. Um, and all the philosophy that comes with it. So, yeah. Um, 
calligraphy in a sense it's very it's a cultural practice that's it's hard to um to pigeonhole it it's hard to um define and it's also hard to confine into existing categories so it's not really purely art history it's definitely not purely literature studies it's also not just history or anything like that so it's really a cultural practice that goes in between and what what happened in the post-war years that they well some some of the artists took out one aspect of it literally aspect but everything else stayed connections to visual arts stayed they remained um the connection to religious uh, practice and you know religious zen buddhism and calligraphy that that all stayed uh, historical references references to chinese classics that all that was all there even in abstract works I think it's probably hard to tell about it. It's for me quite unusual to talk about it without showing actually how it looks like. But <laughs> that's the challenge of the podcast, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, in the post-war uh, context, you talk about how calligraphy felt threatened, and in this way, it was responding to the dramatic social changes that came about in the post-war. Uh, do you believe that calligraphy had a direct social impact as it changed in this way? It had an impact on that part of the society. So I wouldn't say, it, well, it depends which impact you mean. So in terms of how the generation of children that grew up in this point of time experienced calligraphy, yeah, it had a drastic impact um, uh, because, uh, you know, we had, what, four years, five years? when it was not part of school education and then it got returned. So you had, you know, some children who didn't experience it. Um, and, and then it got reintroduced, so they got introduced to it again. Um, otherwise, uh, what's uh, happened also, because this movement, the avant-garde calligraphy movement, it sounds like it's, you know, quite a niche thing, it's quite marginalized, but actually it wasn't. Um, it seems today it's a bit you know, hard to imagine, but back then um, calligraphy was part of the global art exchange, really. And calligraphers, um, you know, some prominent calligraphers of the Bokujinkai group, of Keiseikai, Sojinkai, some others, and independent artists like Hida and Nankoku, they exhibited uh, in the most prominent international art venues. So they were at San Paolo Biennale, Carnegie International, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. They really managed to bring their art to the global level and i think that had an impact it had an impact of how japanese culture was perceived abroad but it also had a big impact on how it was perceived in japan and i think it really helped to re-establish the position of calligraphy to elevate it once again and to show that yes this is a practice that you know cultural practice that is relevant and it is valuable for Japanese culture and it definitely should not uh, disappear. So I think, in a sense, they reached their goal. So that, that goes on to my next question, um, which is where would one perceive avant-garde calligraphy? Was it Would it be exclusively in museums and galleries or would it have a more commonplace presence in um, Japanese society? Um, you know, it's, it's avant-garde calligraphy. Um, 
that's my research. That's what I, you know, that's what I'm focusing on. But it was just one fraction of the entire calligraphy landscape. Where of course not only avant-garde calligraphy artists back then. There were traditionalists. There were people in between. And it, you know, the calligraphic community or like calligraphic world, Shodan, like that's what you call Shodan. It was quite. I mean, it is right now, and it was back then quite big. So and quite diverse as well. Uh, with entire brand widths of, you know, from avant-garde to really traditionalist people. Um, and um, the impact of this avant-garde art movement back then was, uh, I think, significant, but it did not, they did not overtake the entire calligraphy world. It, they did not really become a dominating force in the calligraphic community, even though, even though probably the most prominent and the most noticeable. And yes, you could see it, you can see this works in exhibitions and galleries, but also calligraphers who practiced it, they were, uh, unlike artists, you know, like visual artists, like painters or anything, or sculptors or, I don't know, architects, they were not just professional calligraphers. Most of them were not just professional calligraphers because it was really hard to sustain yourself with just this practice, especially as avant-garde artists. So most of them had day jobs and most of them were active in school education. And so they really, uh, and the school education, like, you know, teaching language, literature and calligraphy. So beyond the museums and um, galleries and stuff, and, you know, the art world, they also have a very strong impact on generation of, you know, young children. It's interesting, but um, you probably know Toshio Watanabe from, from the, from the Sainsbury Institute professor in Japanese arts. So he was a child in um, in Tokyo in the post-war years. And he actually was uh, accidentally turned out that one of his calligraphy teachers was Oeda Sokyu, actually very, very prominent um, figure oh, wow. in the avant-garde movement, yes. And he even got like, you know, a letter with, because he, uh, Professor Vatanabe, like, you know, as a child, he sent his works for competitions. So he get letter from Oeda Sokyu. And for me, this is like absolutely, um, yeah, it's like historical document. <laughs> Amazing. It's really. Yes. So uh, I have one like one last question. Um, so as you mentioned, um, anyone who has learnt uh, Japanese or has a rights Japanese will know how much the aesthetics matters. How um, and you said how it's very obvious to you when reading handwritten Japanese, whether it's been written by a foreigner or uh, someone who is Japanese. Um, I'm just wondering where uh, the line is drawn between someone who can write Japanese very in a very aesthetically pleasing manner mm -hmm. and someone who can call themselves a calligrapher. Mm -hmm. um, first about, you know, difference between foreigners and Japanese people who like write and that you can distinguish it. Yes, you can distinguish it, but only for those foreigners who didn't grow up in Japan. Uh, those who did usually went through the train. So it's really a matter of training, really. Yeah. Uh, so, and so of course, Japanese people who did not grow up in Japan um, and didn't go through this very rigorous training system also very often have handwriting that's different from those who went through it. So, yeah. But, you know, typically people, typically foreigners who write Japanese did not grow up in Japan. So that's usually how you can tell. As for the difference between um, calligraphers and people with a nice handwriting, this is a very good question. And to be honest, um, 
how same as with avant-garde artists you know what you call calligraphy like if it's an abstract work uh, why is it calligraphy uh, it's a matter of identity if you identify the calligrapher um, it's um, I think and you know if you're good enough as well and your peers recognize that you're good enough um, I think that's justified to, to call yourself a calligrapher even though just just good handwriting doesn't give you that because calligraphy is not just about the looks of what you write but it's also with uh, it comes together with all the training of you know classics it comes together with knowledge about theories of calligraphy and all philosophy behind it so it's not just what's written i mean very often from from the from the written thing you can tell whether the person is aware uh, of this movement or not but um, just having good handwriting probably not enough to call yourself a calligrapher and probably person would also would not call yourself a, himself or herself a calligrapher is if he or at least in japan if he or she is not associated with this calligraphy community um, yeah. and that's that's also important yeah so to make a calligrapher it requires the traditional training as well as recognition from peers um, training, recognition from peers, and generally knowledge about the field. So not just the skill, but also the awareness of, the, of you know, of the history and awareness of theories and practices. Yeah. So it's much more than just the, you know, actual handwriting. So are you a calligrapher, Eugenia? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, and it's actually quite a common question. Um, I'm an art historian. Okay. <laughs> and, it's a very good excuse because um, when you study calligraphy history, one of the like at least in Japan, one of the first questions you get to ask um, you get asked is whether you're practicing yourself. And my colleagues who are doing like painting history usually don't get to ask don't get this question asked. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I'm a historian. Uh, I'm an art historian who studies this, but I don't practice myself. Well, thank you for such a uh, fascinating conversation. Um, can you, before we finish, can you just tell us what your recent research is and if you have any books coming out? Uh, <laughs> yes, thanks for asking. Yes, so it's, um, there is a book indeed, there is a book coming out this September, hopefully this September, maybe October, um, called Boku Jinkai, Japanese Calligraphy and the Postwar Avant-Garde, published by Brill. And this is very much, the, will be a history of avant-garde movement of calligraphy in Japan and um, its connections to abstract art movements in Europe in, and in the um, United States. So the ways how Japanese calligraphers interacted with Paris School of Abstraction and New York Schools of Abstraction. And it's like this is really a milestone for me, so I'm so happy that this is finally coming out and hopefully, hopefully some of you will have a chance to read it. Yes, and I plan to stay in this field <laughs> for longer because there is so much to <laughs> Um, yeah. and I, yes, I'm also looking in other practices that merge visual language and uh, visual arts and language, such as uh, such as visual poetry and typography. That's something I'm getting more and more interested in. In, but I definitely plan to stay in calligraphy as well. Great. Yeah. Well, it's good. Now we'll have some more text in English on the topic coming out soon. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time, Eugenia. Thank you. Thank you, Oli. You can find links to Eugenia's research profile in the link below. 
If you would like to explore the diverse and colourful world of Japanese art with Eugenia, check out our new MA in Interdisciplinary Japanese Studies. Beyond Japan will be taking a break as the university prepares for an academic year like no other. We will be back with new episodes in September and we hope you will join us then. Thank you for listening.